0: Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Now, it's the title of my message is Forgotten. Forgotten. Um my my car uh, broke down a few weeks ago and it's been a bummer to be without a, a vehicle. And so I, for a couple of weeks, uh, one of my buddies loaned me their, their Jeep. And, uh, and so I get to drive that. But then for the most part, I've been carless, which means I have had to rely on other people for rides, which is not my favorite thing to do. Um, and so essentially as a 41 year old man, I have lost complete control of my schedule and I have to just sit around and wait on other people. And you know what it feels like? It feels like being back in grade school. It feels like being back in grade school and just like waiting around, like crossing your fingers, like hoping you were going to be the last kid to be picked up, you know, hoping that your mom was going to not forget you that day. Or for me, my, one of my older sisters who would often come get me. And there's a reason why I have this fear because they forgot me on several occasions. Uh, This is a picture of me when I was a kid and my two younger sisters uh, right before their audition for The Shining, and they (laughs) did not get it. This is a bummer, but they were close. If they would have leaned more on typecasting, they would have gotten it. And I remember being about this age and in grade school, and uh, there was one time where I had this thing after school. And so it was like a drawing class that I stayed after four. And so all most of the other kids had gone home. There was like a couple of teachers. And then all those kids in the drawing class, we got out and they all left. And uh, I don't know who was supposed to pick me up. I thought it was one of my older sisters and she did not come. And so I just sort of sat out front. This is a time before cell phones. And so you just sort of sat there miles from your house, just being like, I hope people remember I exist. And they did not, you know, they did not do that. They did not remember. And so I'm sitting there and I kid you not, like, the sun went down. I'm telling you, that is one of the most depressing and frightening things ever. Just sitting out in front of an abandoned school and you, like I'm hearing dogs barking and howling in the background. I'm like, this is where the werewolves eat me. This is how it ends. And I'm, I'm sitting there and what actually happened was my family, like my mom thought my sister was getting me. My sister thought my dad was getting me. My dad thought it was mine. Nobody wanted to take, take responsibility because apparently I was such a good time. And so nobody, everyone thought, and this is what happened. They all sat down for dinner and were yelling for me. So like, ah, ah, do you do this when people aren't at the dinner table? Instead of going and getting them, you just scream, you know, from the other room and some of you are like, no, we text now. We're civilized, okay? This is before text. Ah! And finally, like, like my mom got so annoyed that she stormed into my room and t- pushed open the door. I was like, Adam! And looked around and realized I wasn't there. And then started asking around, like, what, did anybody know where he is? And then they all realized, like, oh, we forgot he was a person that had to be taken care of. And so then my dad came to get me. I just remember him pulling up like frantically in our minivan and like squealing in and being like, get in. Like I was in trouble, like I had done something wrong. I'm like, you forgot me. Why am I, you know, what are you doing? Get in the car. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I, wait, why am I apologizing? It was very confusing. And we got home and, and then I, I remember walking in and my, my younger sister's being like, where were you? Gosh. And I was like, again. You guys forgot me. I was doing, I was the one person who was doing what they were supposed to be doing. I thought we'd had an arrangement. And I gotta tell you, man, few things make you question like whether you belong in this family, like just being left at school for hours on end. You know, like just the only, re- I, to this day, I'm a little bit of me is convinced the only reason why they came to get me is because we had a rule in our house, like you, you couldn't start eating until everyone was at the table and you prayed. So they just like, gosh, we would just leave him, but I'm hungry. I want this goulash. Still a bit scarred. I don't know if you guys can tell. But I don't know if you've had a moment where someone has forgotten you or forgotten something about you or forgotten something that was important to you. And I think when this happens you know, there's a whole set of feelings that, that come after it, right? We feel annoyed or hurt or embarrassed or maybe devalued or unimportant. We may feel angry. We might feel even a little bit betrayed. It doesn't feel good, I'll tell you from my experience. And in the moment, it, what I found is that it's hard not to um, jump to conclusions and make all sorts of assumptions about why it was they forgot, and most of them, if you're in my head, are not great, right? It's just like, they're trying to get back at me for something. What, what is it? What did I do? It couldn't have been this bad. You know, they, like, why would they, you know, they, they knew this would hurt me. And they don't care. They, didn't, they, they obviously don't even care how this makes me feel, right? Or they may not even care about me at all. And if I'm feeling like generous and giving them the benefit of the doubt, and I mean, if you have four hours on a curb, you really go through a lot of thoughts, I'm like, you know, maybe they just got distracted or they didn't write it down or like something came up or like, you know, they just they didn't understand how big of a deal this was, you know? Maybe it wasn't personal, but either way, whether it was or wasn't, it happened and it still hurts. And in these moments, I think we can't help but have a few painful realizations. I think what happens is your, your brain starts to, to land on a couple ideas that like, oh, I get it. What's important to me isn't as important to you. And maybe our brain goes a little bit further to assume that like, I'm not as important to you as you are to me. And these are heartbreaking assumptions. And maybe, maybe you didn't even know how important that thing was to you until somebody you were convinced would always remember forgot. I think it's, it's, it's hard for us not to hang on to moments that make us feel that way. And they come in all different shapes and sizes, right? Wait, so it, you came home, you went to get one thing. You came home with four bags of groceries and you forgot the one thing I asked for, the one thing I wanted, the only thing that I cared about, right? They didn't even remember. They didn't even remember that they said they would help and I really needed help and I was counting on their help and they didn't remember that they said that they would help. They forgot that it was their weekend again. And that changes everything. Or maybe they didn't remember your birthday or your anniversary again. Maybe that like the, the raise that they promised to give you after first quarter just sort of slipped their mind. Didn't slip my mind. Maybe they, you ever had this one where they forgot they'd met you before. Whew. That one's Tough. I think all these scenarios, all these different moments hit us differently because of the specific story that we've lived. And and, and sometimes someone else's forgetfulness doesn't faze us, right? It doesn't bother us. It doesn't like, you know, we don't even barely notice it. But other times someone else's forgetfulness can really hurt us because it shines a spotlight on our biggest fears or deepest insecurities, There's this moment in which you realize like, ooh, that's a tender spot for me. You struck a nerve. And that's a tough place to be. Maybe in that moment you were surprised at how bad their forgetfulness stung. It really surprised you. And then there are moments in life when like so many things have gone off the rails that we don't just feel forgotten by other people, we feel forgotten by God. And I wonder if you've ever had a moment like this, where for, for some reason you feel like the whole universe is stacked against you. And you're flooded with all of the, the same feelings that you get when you feel like a person or a group of people have abandoned you, uh, except it's heightened because now what is added into that moment is the, the, the sheer feeling of hopelessness. And it's this reality that I think all of us end up facing at one point or another that, that makes um, this, this question that Jesus has asked on the cross by someone who's being crucified alongside him so heartbreakingly relatable to me. And I wanna just read you this scenario and see if there's anything in here that resonates with you too. It's found in the book of Luke chapter 23. It's in this moment that Jesus is being crucified alongside two other criminals. There's an entire crowd gathered. And in verse 35, it says this, the crowd scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's really God's chosen one. And one of the criminals beside him said, so you're the Messiah. Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. You know what's really, really helpful when you are in an excruciating amount of pain? Someone making fun of how much pain you're in. It's great. It is so helpful. And yet you've seen this painting or this picture before at some point of this crowd gathered, Christ hanging naked, these two criminals on either side of him. And in reality, as everyone is yelling and cursing and mocking, the things that these people are saying to mock Jesus reveal that they are just as confused about the purpose of power as people still are today. Like this culture's belief, and I would say even our culture's belief, is that the purpose of power is to make life better for yourself, to get what you want and to alleviate your own suffering. But Jesus on the cross believes and demonstrates that he believes that the purpose of power is to make life better for other people, to meet their needs and to alleviate their suffering. It's in this moment where these people are mocking Jesus and essentially saying like, look, look at how powerless you are. And Jesus is thinking this exact moment, you don't understand how true power works. In this moment, the one thing that Jesus can't do is save himself because it would violate his values because in order to save himself, he would have to doom each of us and it's something he would never do. It says in uh, the very next verse, verse 40, that the other criminal, the one who didn't mock him, protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? Like, we deserve to die, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does that mean? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not just asking God to think about him later, which is typically what we think about when we think of remembering He's asking God to act on his behalf later. And he says this out of sincerity, out of humility, out of desperation. And I I think this is something that we all wonder. I think this is a question that we all find ourselves asking at one point or another. Like when I am at my lowest, when I am in pain, paying the price for my past, is God gonna remember me? Will he act on my behalf, or is God, like everyone else, really well-intentioned but forgetful? And before I tell you what Jesus said, what his response was, I want to take a quick detour to the Old Testament. Because there is this story, and it's in the oldest part of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, the very first of the books of the Old Testament, This story about this figure named Joseph that in so many ways is similar to this story of Jesus on the cross between two criminals. And maybe you're familiar with this story, maybe not. Uh, Joseph as a kid was, he had all these brothers. He's from a huge family in the Middle East and he was his father's favorite. And his dad did not try and hide this. And his dad was always lavishing encouragement and praise and like gifts on this kid. And one day the brothers, they just, they, they, they've had their fill. They can't take it anymore. And so they take this kid out when he's showing off something that his dad gave him again, and they beat him to a bloody pulp and they drag him and throw him into a well. And there's this caravan coming by of these traders uh, from the land of Egypt. And so they sell him into slavery to these people who drag him off to another country. The brothers come back, they tell his dad that he's died. The dad is crushed and heartbroken. And Joseph is now dropped in the middle of a place where he doesn't know anybody. Now, he's got, sort of starts off with a cushy job, at least, I mean, the cushiest job you can get as a slave. But then he's falsely accused by this woman that he refuses to sleep with, and he's thrown into prison where he is left to rot. And that's where this story picks up. It says this in Genesis chapter 40, verse one, that sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his chief baker, there's no word about the candlestick maker, which I find suspicious, Is that just me? They offended their master and Pharaoh became angry and he put them in prison where Joseph was and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph who looked after them. Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night and each dream had its own meaning. And when Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. So just to start off, just the big picture on this story, you have Joseph who is innocent who is being punished alongside two criminals who are not. Does this sound familiar? Is it, it should. Very next verse, chapter uh, 40, verse eight. They replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. I love the fake out, right? That's something only God can do. Fortunately, I'm super tight with God. Tell me everything, right? And like, oh, oh, right? And so he goes on, these guys, they, they tell him uh, their dreams and Joseph interprets them with the help of God. And he, he tells them that they're both about to be done with the misery that they're currently in. Like one of them is gonna end up back in the palace, but the other is gonna pass from this moment of punishment to an even more punishing moment. That they're both gonna be released, but the cupbearer would live on and the baker would be put to death. And when he tells them this thing, he goes on to say something else to the cupbearer who he believes is gonna get out. In verse 14, he says this, please remember me. When things go well for you, remember me. Mention me to the Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. I was kidnapped from my homeland and now I'm here in prison, but I haven't done anything to deserve it. And so Joseph is pleading to be remembered by the one person that he believes has the power to help him because he's innocent. And on the cross, the criminal next to Jesus pleads with him to remember him. Jesus being the one person that he believes has the power to help him because he's guilty. It says in Genesis chapter 40, verse 20, that Pharaoh's birthday came. Three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all of his officials and staff, and he summoned his chief cupbearer and the chief baker to join the other officials. And then he restored the chief cupbearer to his former position. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker. Not a great way to die. Just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. And then listen to this. But Pharaoh's chief cupbearer forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Isn't there something heartbreaking about that line? Something that just sort of crushes you? Maybe maybe when you hear it, your personality is not to get disappointed. Your personality is to get angry at the injustice that you have someone who out of the good of their own heart tried to help someone else who made a promise to them and then forgot what they said they were gonna do and didn't follow through. And how infuriating maybe that makes you on the inside. When I read this story, I picture it as a movie scene where the two guys go off and Joseph is like, I know that this is gonna happen. I know that I can trust God to do what God said he was gonna do. And so... Like he sort of, you know, pulls himself together and he collects like the couple of belongings that he collected in prison. He says goodbye to like, you know, his favorite guards, guard, probably only one guy that he liked there, right? A couple of the inmates and he just is sort of like pacing in his cell, like anxiously just awaiting for the word to come down from Pharaoh that his pardon had been granted, that he was getting out. He just kept pacing and and pacing and, and pacing and eventually the sun went down and his legs got tired and 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 he began like wondering if it was really going to happen. And as he waited and waited and waited, news never came. And I wonder if you know what this feels like. I wonder if you've, had a time in your life where you tried to do the right thing and you you trusted your fate to something or someone else and then you you waited around for them to come through for you and you experienced that anxiety of being incredibly vulnerable just waiting and waiting and waiting to see if they were going to honor you you probably also know the sinking feeling of realizing they forgot It's not going to happen. They're not going to deliver. It's not going to be the way you wanted it to be. And by the way, I think it's important to just point out that the cupbearer isn't a bad guy. He he didn't mean to forget. It just happened, right? He got wrapped up in his own life and his own worries and his own stress and and the good and the bad and the the complicated of his own existence. And he just, he's spaced on it. But there's no way, of course, for Joseph to know that. There's no cell phones. There's nobody like bringing messages back to the prison. And so Joseph is just sitting there doing what we do, right? Like making assumptions, jumping into conclusions. It may not have been intentional, but that doesn't mean it, it still didn't sting. And I think it might've even stung more for Joseph because he had all kinds of baggage in his story related to betrayal, by people that he was close to that he thought he could count on. The cupbearer knew this. He knew that this was a, a tender space for him, and yet, what was he thinking? Why would he do this? I can imagine Joseph thinking to himself, I guess what is important to me just isn't as important to you. And I guess I learned the hard, horribly painstaking way that I'm not as important to you as you clearly are to me. And yet, even though the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph, God never did. Because God is not like people. God is trustworthy and reliable and unfailing. In fact, there are all these scriptures in both the Old and New Testament that keep saying the same sort of thing over and over and over again, trying to remind us of the character of God and how it is different from the character of even well-meaning people. Let me just read you some of these accounts. This is Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. It says this, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? These are rhetorical questions, by the way, where the answer is implied, of course not. So what is it that God promises? Too many good things to count here, but a couple that are relevant to this conversation in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6 It says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic. The Lord, your God, personally goes ahead of you. He will not fail you or abandon you. And then this idea is carried on even into the New Testament where the apostle Paul, who's credited with having written a good portion of the New Testament, one of the first Christians, writes this. He's also a fan of rhetorical questions. He starts in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, by saying, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, despite all these things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice that he keeps repeating the same phrase over and over and over again. Why do you do that? Because you want people to get it. This is important. This is essential. I need you to understand this. And here's the question that I have for you today. Do you believe this? Like, do you really believe it? Not just like, yeah, yeah, what are we, I, yeah, kind of. Do you deep in your bones believe that this is true. And and if you look at your life and just say, like, honestly, no. I I have my doubts. I have my suspicions. Like, I live as if it weren't true. And, And I wonder, like, what would your life look like if you really believed that this is who God was? By the way, God followed through with Joseph too. He pulls him out of prison. He places him in the palace. And why is this important to understand? Because this story isn't just about Joseph. It's about me and you too. I think Jesus wants you to know that he won't forget you either. That he won't leave you in your prison, whatever it looks like because we all have things in our lives that seek to chain us to the shadows. We have these dark spaces that we are afraid that we are never gonna get out of. We have certain prisons that we feel stuck in. And maybe for you, it's a situation or it's a habit or it's a mindset or it's a relationship. Whatever that thing is for you, it, it feels uh, you know, uh, oppressive and, and entrapping and enslaving. I would argue that God wants you to know what he wanted Joseph to know, that I see you. I haven't forgotten you. I know how hard this moment is for you. I haven't abandoned you. Put your trust in me because I have something better for you on the other side of this. And he wanted the criminal on the cross to know this too. When Jesus, when he asked Jesus to remember him, This is Jesus' reply. He says, I assure you, today, you will be with me in paradise. That sounds great. Maybe you're like, what what does that mean? Paradise is this term that's only used a couple times throughout the entirety of scripture. It's first used to describe the Garden of Eden, later used here, with Jesus on the cross, and later in the book of Revelation, But essentially, they're describing the same sort of thing in a very cryptic way. They're describing an experience of peace and joy and connectedness where everything is as God intends it to be. It's what it is. Paradise is what it is to know God, that he is with you, that you are not alone and that you are never without hope. It's something that we can tap into now and it's also a place that we can travel to Later, Both things are true, and it's for more than just the thief. The apostle Paul goes on to say to us in in the book of Romans that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet Paul wasn't the first person to say this. Peter, head of the, the, the early church, says it in the book of Acts, and both of these guys are quoting this Old Testament prophet, Joel, essentially saying that when we humble ourselves and put our faith and trust in God, we can experience salvation, which means paradise. And so what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? I think the thief shows us, and I think it's easy to miss. He turns to him and says desperately, Jesus, he calls him, Jesus, and maybe you're just like, I don't know that that's as cool of an observation as you think it is, Pastor Adam, but what else would he call him? And there's a lot of other things. In fact, throughout the New Testament, the disciples mostly call him teacher and master or rabbi. All throughout the gospels, really the only people who ever call him Jesus are people who are desperate for healing. Jesus in Hebrew means the Lord saves. Which means that just uttering the name Jesus is a one-word prayer that means, Lord, save me. I wonder if you've ever seen or heard someone just passionately, quietly praying the name Jesus. I remember when I was a kid, like going to church a little bit early because my family served there and, and seeing some, some uh, older people that came early to pray before the service. And I remember this one lady in particular would sit on the front row and she would rock back and forth and just whisper the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I, of course, as a kid, just assumed she's crazy. I wonder if you've ever heard someone who just, that's all they could muster was just praying the name Jesus. Or maybe you've heard a song that talked about how beautiful or how powerful or how amazing the name Jesus is. And you're just like, okay, I don't get it, but you guys are really into that name, I guess. Maybe you've heard people talk about how salvation is only really accessible and available through the name of Jesus. And I I think for a lot of us, there's a disconnect here because when we hear Jesus, we just hear a name. But the people at the foot of the cross would have heard more than a name. They would have heard a phrase, a humble prayer. One man desperately turning to another that he believed had the power to help him and whispering to him, please save me. And it's in this moment that his life, his mindset, his eternity is transformed. Because it's when we admit, when we finally come to the place that we admit that we have a need, that God can graciously meet it. Because healing always requires humility. It requires that we find ourselves in a place where we realize we're in over our head, that we cannot escape the situation on our own, that we cannot fix it ourselves, that we cannot bail ourselves out of the mess that we've made or been thrown into by someone else. Requires we humble ourselves and say, remember me, Jesus, Lord, save me. And a lot of people, including the criminal on the other side. The one thing that they won't exchange for wholeness is humility. But it's worth it. And in fact, that's the point of the Joseph story. That's the point of the the criminal story. And I want to encourage you to make this the plot of your story I wanna encourage you to do the same because the reality of it is God never forgets his promises and he always honors our trust. And you don't have to make this decision to humble yourself and trust in Jesus. A lot of people don't. And in fact, God loves you enough to give you this level of freedom. Joseph is surrounded by two criminals one who moved beyond his pain into paradise and one who didn't. Jesus was crucified next to two criminals, one who humbly asked for help and one who held tight to his pride and extended his own suffering. And here's the thing. Both of these thieves had the same need. They both had equal access, but only one had the courage and the humility to ask for help, to say, Lord, you've got to save me. And all this brings me to you because that's where the ultimate question lies. What are you going to do? Because you and I, we all have the same choice that they had. And I want to encourage you to choose Jesus because unlike everyone else, he will never forget you. And I wonder how you would live if you really believed that how it would change the way you thought about and lived through and approached everything. What Joseph and the thief both discovered is that the promise of heaven gives us the strength to survive a whole lot of hell. And I gotta tell you, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what prison you feel stuck inside of. I don't know the situation, the circumstances that seem to be crucifying you killing everything that is important to you, holding your hopes and dreams hostage. I have no idea what sort of hell you've drawn in the course of life that you are walking through in this very moment. But I do know this, that for someone stuck in an actual prison and for someone dying on an actual cross in the midst of the worst physical and emotional hells they could ever imagine, when God makes a promise, they know he can be trusted. And that promise of paradise, not just in the future, but, but that can be tapped into this very moment, the promise that despite how you feel, you are not alone. You have not been abandoned. The universe is not stacked against you, and hope is not lost. And when these people grabbed hold of this and trusted God for this, their paradigm shifts and they begin to experience paradise in the here and now. And I wonder what sort of hell you are pridefully trying to muscle through on your own and God's message to you is just simply turn towards me and whisper the words, Jesus, Lord, you gotta save me. You gotta pull me out. You got to rescue me. You got to help me. I am in over my head. And I wonder if your humility in that moment to whisper that one sentence prayer, Jesus, I wonder if it would have the ability to transform everything about what comes next. I want to end this service in sort of a different way. And unfortunately it does require standing. Standing. Um, So I'm going to ask you just to stand to your feet if you're capable. And we are going to close by singing one final song. It's a song about the beauty and the power of the name of Jesus. And you probably heard this song before. Maybe you've even sang it before and just been like, "I I don't get it, but I like it. Today's the day you sing it because you get it. Because you get it and you mean it because it's real for you, because it comes from a place of desperation, of honesty, of humility. That when you whisper the name Jesus, you're not just calling on a name, but you are humbling yourself, that you are surrendering to something that is bigger than you, the one and only thing that can promise you paradise. And today, as we sing together, I pray that you open your heart and envision the thing in your head that you feel stuck in, And I want you to envision Jesus making a promise to you that he will never break. I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I won't ever forget you. I'm not even capable. Trust me. Let's sing. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.